Welcome to Relationship University. My name is Natalie Bloom, therapist and counselor specializing in young professionals. Each episode, you'll hear uncommon conversations with real people and take away psychological insights and tools to strengthen your relationship to dating, friendships, partners, and work. But most importantly, improving the relationship you have to yourself. Thanks so much for joining me and let's get it started. Welcome back to Relationship University. Today, we're going to talk about the basics of egg freezing. I just went through the process of egg freezing last year, and I remember when I was debating whether or not to do it, I was listening for any podcast I could get my ears on just to get more info and learn as much as I could on the topic. So today, I'm bringing on an amazing expert in the field who will answer some common questions about the process and science of freezing your eggs, and hopefully it's going to be really helpful to you. And today's guest is Dr. Monika Pasternak, a physician and the medical director at Spring Fertility San Francisco. Spring Fertility is a highly reputable fertility center that has many locations across the U.S. and Canada, primarily in the San Francisco Bay Area, New York, and in Vancouver. And a little bit about our amazing guest. Dr. Pasternak attended Columbia University, where she majored in Middle East and South Asian studies with a minor in biology. She completed medical school at the University of Miami, where she also received her MBA. She's not a high achiever at all, right? Um, Before going to complete her obstetrics and gynecology residency at Yale. She then completed her fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at Cornell. She's an incredibly knowledgeable doctor and leader in the field of fertility, and I'm so thrilled to bring her knowledge to you. So I hope you enjoy the show. So I am thrilled to be here with my guest, Monika Pasternak, Dr. Monika Pasternak. And I'm especially excited for this conversation because Dr. Pasternak was my doctor who took me through my own egg freezing process just a few months ago. And I was so blown away by how relatable Dr. Pasternak was and how I immediately felt so comfortable talking to her on a personal level. And plus, she's hilarious. And also that was matched with so much confidence as a doctor and knowledge in the field. And um, it really made my egg freezing experience better than I could ever imagine. And I also want to say a big shout out to Dr. Pasternak's amazing team um, who were incredible. And I really haven't been this impressed in a long time. So in addition to sending all my friends who are interested in egg freezing to Dr. Pasternak, I thought I'd ask her to come on the show and share her knowledge and amazing personality with you all. So let's talk egg freezing, baby, and welcome to the show, Dr. Pasternak. Thank you so much, Natalie. It's really a pleasure. I'm coming to you live from my closet in San Francisco. And uh, no, it's awesome (laughs) to be here. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It was obviously a total pleasure um, and privilege to take care of you as a patient. And I'm excited to answer any questions and just talk about eggs, baby. All right. Fantastic. So I have 20 questions. And I thought these are questions that I really wanted to know before I started the process. Mm -hmm. And I thought we could just get your expert advice and opinions um, and specialty on each of these questions. So let's get it going. So firstly, 
What do you think are some pros and cons of deciding to freeze your eggs? Pros and cons of of freezing your eggs or deciding to do that process? Because I think, honestly, there's a little bit of a connotation and probably some different elements that are pros and cons of both of those things. The pros of actually doing it are more scientific, right? The cons of or the cons of doing it again would be few, but would be more scientific. Whereas the pros and cons of deciding to do it, I think, are a lot more emotional and empowering in terms of just being a person who's going through that process. So as far as the pro, let's talk about it scientifically. The pros of doing it, well, this is going to be a bit of a long-winded answer, so I'll try to wrap it down a little bit. But our biology as women in terms of reproductive longevity is not equal to men. You know, we might be gaining a lot of ground in terms of social equality, financial equality, but when it comes down to our basic biologics, there are certain things that are just fundamentally different. Most importantly, men are making sperm their entire lives, so they are always new and fresh, even if quality declines generally. We as women are not making eggs our entire lives. We've had all of them since birth. So freezing your eggs allows us to, for lack of, I mean, making it a little bit colloquial, level the playing field a little bit when it comes to the longevity with which we can reproduce. And also with which we can date and find the right partner or find the right time Mm -hmm. in which we want to be parents. It's not all about finding a partner. A lot of it is about the timing. Maybe you have your partner. Maybe you don't want a partner, whatever the case may be. But I would say the main pro is this allows us to focus more on the other things that we want in life in order to optimize the time at which we want to be parents. Because ask any parent, it is not just a full-time responsibility. It is your main responsibility. doesn't matter if you're doing a million other things. Being a parent is a 20 times fold full-time job. So I would really hope, you know, not, I don't know that we're ever really ready for it, but I would say that the main pro is to be as ready as possible and as happy as possible about embarking on that journey mm-hmm. because it should be something that fulfills us and excites us. And you want to be doing that at the right time. So scientifically speaking, that's the main pro. As far as the main con, I really don't know that there are many cons short of the fact that it is not a foolproof 100% insurance plan, right? There are no 100% insurance plans in life. Mm-hmm. Our, mm-hmm. I mean, I hate to say like the what life, death, taxes, yada, 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 right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there is no 100% guarantee. So whereas we do have practices like our data in my practice, we, we, we have our egg freeze and thaw data. We can tell you what the statistics are, right? But at the end of the day, you as an individual are not a statistic. So could you be that outlier who freezes eggs and everything looks great and then ultimately those eggs don't lead to a baby? Unfortunately, yes. So I would say that the con is that it is not a foolproof 100% insurance policy. So even though it can help us guide our life and hopefully gain time, it's, it's not something we can rely on 100%. So if you are setting about doing that, it might be in a very unfortunately rare circumstance giving you false hope. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that I definitely saw that in my own life that um, I'm in my thirties and I'm not ready at this point to have a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that age is a factor. And I also want to kind of put this out there too, that um, before we jump into some further questions, 
Um, I completely get and also just want to call out that this conversation might be triggering for some people, especially because we're talking about age and fertility and some women feel a lot of pressure around wanting mm-hmm. to have a family and it not happening in the timing or in the in the way that they had imagined. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, what have you seen in terms of the pressures that women are facing around the topic of fertility and egg freezing? And also, What's been your personal experience in that regard, if you wouldn't mind sharing? Oh, yeah, I have no problem sharing. And that's a very important point. You know, I was earlier focusing on what the advantages are in terms of allowing us to live our lives. But I think a lot of people, and when I say women, I would like to clarify, I'm going to say women because it's easier and rolls off the tongue and it's one word. Uh, I could say people, I could also say people who have ovaries, right? So all of these things. Mm -hmm. I'm using in one fell swoop. So I apologize. I don't mean to offend anyone by that, right? I have a lot of patients who are transitioning from female to male because they are not in the gender that they believe is appropriate for them. So, right, I'm talking about genetic mm-hmm. sex. I'm talking about being born mm-hmm. with ovaries, right? Thank so you, when I yeah. say women, I would just like to point out that that is what I'm referencing. I apologize in advance if to our audience that's not that does not reflect how they feel. But so as far as, you know, people who are going through this process, a lot of people who are doing this want to be mothers already. And that is, you know, I think probably the most trying experience of it, maybe wanting to be there already, maybe not wanting to be there on your own, but knowing in an ideal world you would be with in in the social, financial, personal situation in which that economic situation in which that would be possible. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think that it is triggering for a lot of people. And I know I'm very happy. I tell a lot of my patients who come in because I will say it's not uncommon to come into my office and immediately start crying. I don't Mm -hmm. mean to trigger Uh tears in people, but I think that it's getting your foot in the door is often the hardest part of this. And I have had tons of patients who come in feeling very secure and excited for this and come in and start weeping. And that is extremely, extremely appropriate, common, whatever emotions you want to feel are appropriate, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I have frozen my eggs now on uh, more than one occasion. And I, the first time I froze them, I was not ready for children. And I was just coming fresh out of a six year relationship. Uh, But I was not happy the direction which my life had taken there, right? I was Mm -hmm. really happy professionally how I was headed. But personally, I knew, wow, okay, I'm really starting from scratch here. You know, ultimately, it was the best decision for my life. But in terms of the plans I was making, we were starting from zero. And I had just not mm-hmm. thought that I was going to be in the place where I was going to do that. And I think a lot of people, whether or not they're the ones who make that decision to end up in that place, or if they feel like that decision was made for them, are going to feel that way walking into see a person who uh, professionally does what I do. So I think that... Um, it can be very difficult from that respect. I would encourage people to just get their foot in the door because regardless of whether you're ready to be a parent five years from now, 10 years from now, or yesterday, biologically, this is the way to go about preserving this ability and empowering yourself. So, I mean, I could give a million and a half dating tips, life tips, education Mm -hmm. tips, but they're not going to be applicable to everybody. What I can make applicable to everybody is our biology. You know, until we can 
create stem cells for eggs, which we do not have yet, right? Until we can uh, regenerate eggs, which we yet cannot do successfully and reliably. Until I can create the deuterus so that guys have to carry pregnancies and we don't, right? Things are not biological. I would love for you to create that. I would love for you. (laughs) Can you do that, please? The the muterus, the deuterus, whatever you want to call it. That's my dream. I would love that. (laughs) Until we we can do all these things, it's, it's not the same. It's not the same for us. And guess what? Regardless, maybe you are in the place where you're like, I've got my partner. I've got the life. I'm actually kind of ready for kids emotionally, but you know, professionally, I'm just starting to crush it. I've just figured out what I want to do. There's this huge myth that we have to know in our 20s what we're going to do with our lives. I fall into that myth. Like I was one of those people, right? I've been in training to be in medicine since I was 17. But and not to say that I didn't go, I tried a bunch of things. I interned at a news division. Like medicine was ultimately the thing that worked for me and what I wanted to do. But you don't have to have your life figured out. And even if you do, it doesn't mean that you have to be ready, be it personally or be it even time-wise, right? Maybe you've just finally made this huge coup at work and really cannot be physically pregnant at that point, right? There's so many reasons why it's much harder from that respect on the people who have the uterus, who have the ovaries in terms of the burden. So I would say that while I can't, I can't find a person's partner for them, God willing, I would I would do that for everybody, right? You, I think you want to do everything for everyone. Uh, you know, I, like, <laughs> what I need to do, I would be like the matchmaker. Could, if I could do all these things, I cannot make that job that you want come to you. But what we can do in my profession is do our very best to keep you where you are biologically to give you the option to delay family until the time that it makes the most sense for you as an individual. Maybe that's a better way of saying than when you're ready. Because when you're ready, I know what I mean by that. It might sound a little bit condescending to people who have been ready for five years and just have not met their partner and really want a partner for personal, financial, whatever the reasons are in order to start a family. Right. There's so many, there's so much variety um, in people's stories and mm-hmm. what it means to have a family, what kind of family and when someone right. is ready or the right timing or the ability to. So we'll it do our best. for everyone, right? And I love it when people come in and say to me, hey, I don't even know if I want to be a genetic parent. I probably want to adopt, but I want the option. Whatever family means to you, fantastic. We mm-hmm. need more people to adopt. There are so many children that need adopting, right? But I, I this is giving you the option of having a genetic child. So I would like to clarify that this is not the only mm-hmm. way to make a family. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. And yeah, that is, that makes a lot of sense. And there are so many different ways to have a family, be a part of a family. Um, so, you know, now that we're kind of, we're brushing up on the topic of age, I'm wondering what's the average age of someone who comes to see you and, and, is there like a trend in the population that's interested in egg freezing from your experience? Mm-hmm. So in terms of, so I see patients for several reasons, egg freezing being one of them. So we, we put that under the umbrella of fertility preservation, right? So egg and embryo freezing being the main um, elements of fertility preservation. There are other 
um, ways that you can preserve fertility that are much less common and much more ex uh, related to more extreme portions of the population, right? Unfortunately, children with cancer that cannot go through an egg stimulation, right? So what we're, we're focusing here on egg freezing, but I would like to point out that's not the only form of fertility preservation. As far as people who come to me for that, I will say that my popu the population I see is mostly in between their late 20s to late 30s. Um, however, I see people who are younger than that, and I see people who are older than that, right? I have patients who have frozen eggs up until the age of 43. Uh, we do, we have babies born from frozen eggs up until the age of 42. And now mind you, this is the age at which we take out the egg. This is not the age okay. of the female patient when they become pregnant, right? Okay. So I have done egg freezing for 43-year-old patients, but I have yet to have a woman um, come back to use those eggs or come, or someone who has come back and become pregnant with those eggs. I have them from 42 year old women. Mm -hmm. I generally speaking, uh, it's, it's not something most women in their early twenties are focused on. And, and I think it's something we should always be concerned about our biology, but I think for good reason in your early twenties, you have a lot of reproductive lifespan ahead of you. You're focusing on other things and there are, you just have so much time in terms of family planning that it's probably not at top of the list. And nor should I recommend it to necessarily be top of the list. Would I fault somebody for wanting to know about it that early? Absolutely not. But if somebody came to me saying, hey, I'm 23, should I be doing this now? Or can I do this in five, even 10 years? The ability to freeze eggs is not all that different from that timeline. So I would say that there are outliers, right? There are people who will have a, um, because of family history or whatever the case may be, or medications they are on, such as certain chemotherapeutic um, agents, like people who have cancer who are already going through chemotherapy. There are extremes of every situation, but generally speaking, mm -hmm. my patient population for egg freezing is mostly within their late 20s to late 30s. Mm -hmm. So would there be so would there be an ideal age for egg freezing so you would would it would it be better if someone was 23 versus 33 um and um as far as would it be better so that is there when we talk about quality of eggs, right, since we've had all our eggs since before we were born, which is an important concept, right? If you just hear we've had all our eggs since before we were born, that's just a data point. It's important to understand the contrast is that most of our cells we have not had since before we were born, right? We have mm -hmm. stem cells, which are the mothership cells in our body that regenerate most cells that we have. So if you think about the cells that are living in your body, most of them have been around for a couple, you know, up from anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of years, but most of them have not been with us since before we were born because they've been, they, the, their previous cells have done their purpose, served their function and either died off been killed off by our body, been replaced by these stem cells, these mothership cells. So that's what's happening for, for men or people who have testicles, right, who are creating sperm. That's what's happening for them. They're constantly regenerating sperm. Not everyone. There are exceptions, right? And male factor fertility is certainly a real thing. A lot of the patients who come to me have male have an issue with sperm. That being mm -hmm. said, because most men are constantly regenerating sperm, the quality control issue is less than with eggs, which we've had for as long as we've been alive. And that's something that your you should ask your physician if you're coming to seek treatment or a consult to know more about your biology. This is something you should ask them about. You know, it's a, a long, in-depth conversation. I spend an hour with most of my 
new patients to go over this kind of thing, but that's kind of like a Mm -hmm. high end overview. So our quality and quantity of eggs has been going down since before we were born, but um, especially after we were born at a more expedited fashion, but it's in a really slow decline in our 20s and in our early 30s, which is Mm -hmm. why you see these trends in, especially prior to women getting on birth control, right? So when people were using non-protected, were having non-protected intercourse and not using contraception, you see these trends over centuries in live birth rate. And we've seen it. Uh, we, we've tracked it since the 1600s. So we know this to be a fact, right? And we've we've had many other data points to emphasize this once we started to be able to really count rates of pregnancy loss, be able to test pregnancy losses, see if they looked like they were going to be normal chromosome pregnancies or not, looking at um, IVF success rates. All of these things have really cemented for us that this decline is happening, but it really becomes more pronounced in our later 30s. So if a woman were coming to me and saying, I have the opportunity, now this is not a scenario that I encounter frequently, right? But if a woman were coming to me and saying, I have the opportunity to freeze my eggs now at 26, or I can come back at 32. In reality, there is not a very large difference between those two ages. Yes, you might have a slightly higher success rate at you know 26 in terms of the number of eggs that could lead to viable babies. But unless this were a situation in which they absolutely had to do that now at 26, I would say until your early 30s is probably you're going to have a similar success rate in terms of each egg having the ability to lead to a normal pregnancy. As far as the number mm-hmm. of eggs, that's declining in a linear fashion as we get older. So most people, if they come back one year out of, you know, after year, after year, after year, will probably get one to two less eggs every year. But egg number, while it's something that we hang our hat on because it's tangible, not as important in terms of what can make a healthy baby. Mostly important in terms mm-hmm. of what we do. The more eggs we can get, obviously the higher chance of, a, of having a baby from them. But that number is very dependent on the individual female. And again, that's a whole other, unfortunately, like larger topic, which I'm happy to address if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, if somebody were to say, hey, I'm 28, should I come in now or should I come in at 38? Well, that re- that decline in our egg quality really does start to become more pronounced once we hit our second half of our 30s. So I would say from that standpoint, better to be doing it at 28, but 28 versus like 32, really not a, really not a big notable difference. And Mm -hmm. some people get really lucky and this is covered for them by their, you know, their workplace or whatever the case may be, or maybe they have the funding, but a lot of women are just kicking it into high gear in their early thirties to be able to save the money to do this. These medications are expensive. So mm-hmm. I don't want I, the number of times people have come in saying to me at, at 33 young women coming in and saying, I'm so mad. I didn't do this when I was 27. We've got, we've got to give ourselves a break. And there's really not that notable of a difference. Okay. So that's, uh, to me, that sounds like really hopeful information. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds like twenties and early thirties is pretty fair game. There's not like the hugest of difference yeah. for, for a lot of women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to, mm-hmm. please, we're going to add something. No, sorry, they did some, so this is less, 
I don't love cost effectiveness studies, but because this is, you know, because I don't love making medicine about cost, but let's be real, like this, this is a prohibitively expensive process for someone who's paying for it out of pocket. There's a lot of technology and science and medicine that goes into this, right? So the, co the cost effective analyses that were done in the early 2010s did show that the most cost effective time for women to be doing this was from about 28 to 30 until about 35, 36. So that means when I say cost effective, I'm thinking in terms of still having good egg quality, right? And also mm -hmm. the chance of using them in the future, because I think that's also the big difference. If you're coming in at 23 and you have no idea what the rest of your life has in store, there's probably a higher chance of you not using those eggs, right? Mm -hmm. I can't really mm -hmm. tell you, I, I've got less of an idea of what's coming down the pipeline for you. And I, in terms of and where biology is going to factor into that. Now, most women, uh, we've heard this as a physician, I've heard this so many times, most women who freeze their eggs never come back for them. That is true to date. That being said, the technology for egg freezing only really got great in the mid 2010s. So, mm -hmm. and a lot of women who came in just still are not, are not at the point where they are using those eggs yet, or maybe they decided to have a baby or met the person with, they're gonna, with, with whom they're going to have a baby. And now they've had baby number one, but it's going to get harder for baby number two because they're going to be in their late thirties, early forties. So I think it's a bit of a misnomer to say that in the future, most women will not be coming back for their eggs. I don't think we can really say that yet, but what I can say is that 23, I re I really have no idea what, what your future is in store for you. Mm -hmm. right? But if you're coming to me at 35, where you still have good quality eggs, but you're saying, I want two to three kids. I don't have a partner yet. I would really like to have a partner, but regardless of whether or not I have a partner, I probably won't be starting to have children until my late thirties. Those people have a much higher likelihood of using their right, eggs, right? Right, right. In the, in, down the line. And I even have couples in their early thirties who say, Hey, we want three kids and we're not ready yet. You have to mm -hmm. think about the last child you want. And biologically speaking, there's no magic time, right? And something doesn't happen. We hear these scary ages. Women get scared of 30, right? Society does that to us. That's a whole mm -hmm. can of That's a fun. That's, that's a, a whole fun can one. of BS, right? Mm -hmm. We all freak out on our 30th birthday. You are young and wonderful at 30. Your eggs are fantastic quality. Then the next big number we've heard is 35. Why? Well, my industry is part of that, my medical industry. We mm -hmm. cut off of the age of 35 saying before 35, you can try getting pregnant for up to a year after 35, only six months, and then you must come in, right? It's this huge fear-mongering thing. We're not doing it because something magical happens when you turn 35. We're doing it because that is an age that makes sense, right, in terms of knowing that we are starting to get really the decline really starts more precipitously in terms of egg quality around 36, 37. But we know that in terms of that decline, we want people to start focusing on that and wait less time before they come in to get evaluated. Just mm -hmm. because we don't, the last thing that we want, I am not conservative in life <laughs> or in we mm -hmm. don't need to talk about that. I am not a conservative person. <laughs> Let's talk about um, it. Okay. <laughs> I am conservative in terms of building the family you want. I want people right. to be able to have the family they want. So what I don't want is for somebody who's 36 to try for three years to get pregnant and then come in to see me. And then it's much harder, right? Not that you can't get pregnant. Right. Nine, you can. But I'm right. saying that's why we use those numbers. So there right. are these scary ages that we use. But in reality, it is all individual from person to person. You need your own evaluation. But in terms of freezing eggs, 
while the best time to do it is probably sometime between 28 and 36, there are those are not the hard and fast limits. Okay, got it. My second exercising yeah. cycle, I did at 36. I'm putting that out there right now. That is not within the cost-effective analysis. So Okay, awesome. So this is good. This is good to know. So it sounds like late late 20s, early 30s is the sweet spot. 35, there is some start of decline decline with egg quality and quantity for a lot of seven. Yeah. 36, 37. We've been declining in all of these things. Egg quantity is a linear decline. It's been it's been declining since before we were born. And let's reset the narrative there, right? So we are born with all the eggs we've ever going to have, but you hear all these scary, like, you know, pieces of information and data points put out there like, oh my God, you've lost 90% of your eggs by the time you're 30, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Well, guess what? You lost like 80% of your eggs by the time you were born. We have five mm-hmm. to six million eggs halfway through our mother's pregnancy with us. We're born, most of us, with one to two million. So let's shift that narrative a little bit, right? We've been losing eggs in numbers since before we were born. We're losing those linearly. Egg quality, however, we're not losing linearly. It's a much slower decline that picks up much faster, unfortunately, once we get to the second half of our 30s. And the way that I like to explain it to patients if they want to go down that you know line of questioning, because not everyone does, but... If you think of our bodies like machines, because they are at the end of the day, right? We're not robots, but our bodies are machines. If you ha- if you buy a machine, think of a car, right? Is your car going to have one little problem every year until all of a sudden it stops working? No, it's going to have a few little things with like the AC and the window or whatever. And it's going to keep working until all of a sudden you get to a certain point And like the clutch breaks, the engine starts falling out, like all these things are happening. So that's not, I mean, that's a very, very colloquial way to put it. But the start of that more pronounced decline for us where we need to be more vigilant and think about this more as, as women is in our, the later part of our 30s does not mean you cannot get pregnant naturally in your 40s you absolutely can but in terms of planning for the full family you want not Mm -hmm. baby number one unless that's all you want i that that's why we advise women to come in in the first half of their 30s if they can got it how many eggs do we need to freeze for per child for, I don't know, how, how many eggs should we be hoping to freeze? How can we understand that? So that's, uh, and that's a difficult question because I think, again, we set up expectations and, and, and I love when people talk to their friends about egg freezing or they talk to other people who they know who have gone through it. But if you talk to people and you do a deep dive online, you're going to get these numbers that are not necessarily attainable for everybody, right? There is no one magical number. I bring this up because oftentimes women come in to me with this number 20. They want 20 eggs. They've heard they need 20 eggs in order to have a family. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't come from no data. It comes from data. But when you think it, so if you look, for example, at, at my practice, we have our online egg calculator that shows based on our data, right, how many eggs from our practice from the patients who we have frozen and thawed and created embryos for, how many eggs by age statistically you need in order to have one child or more than one child, right? Now, our data is different than national data. It happens to be higher, but we also have more up-to-date data because we're constantly updating our calculator as we thaw Mm -hmm. more eggs. So a lot of the data that people are hearing about, though, is from the early 2010s, where the the technology for this was not as good. So let me just break it down in terms of what, what is there, what information is out there. 
when people, I think that the easiest way to reframe this is in terms of donor eggs. What are donor eggs, right? Donor eggs are donated and not, let's, let's be frank about this. Most people, unless it is a family member, are not truly donating their eggs. Women who do this, just like men who donate sperm, are getting paid for this process, right? It is not mm-hmm. enough of a cost for it to be a financially driven, purely mechanism, but they are getting paid for this, right? This is not something that we're just picking people off the street and saying, give us your eggs out of the good of your heart. We hope that's their motivation, but people are getting reimbursed for this because it is a medical process. But donor eggs are eggs that either women who have not been able to conceive with their own eggs or men who are wanting to have a child on their own or with another person who is not producing eggs, right? These people Mm -hmm. are buying eggs in order to have a child with either their sperm, donor sperm, whatever the case may be. Depending on what state you live in, the cutoff for how old you can be to donate your eggs is different. Most states, it's between 30 and 34. Okay. And it kind of goes back to what we talked about in terms of egg quality, right? So Mm -hmm. when you are buying donor eggs, and this is a whole separate conversation, unfortunately, for another day. um, When you're buying donor eggs, depending on what way method in which you are buying them, be it frozen eggs from an egg bank, be it a fresh donor, that's fresh donor is a whole separate story, but frozen eggs from an egg bank that are usually from women under the age of 32, in order to have a baby from these eggs, we encourage people to buy between six and 12 frozen eggs. So I put to have one baby, six and 12 frozen eggs per one baby, one baby. And that's for people that are buying donor eggs, buying donor eggs, right? I'm giving you this information just to say when women come into me and say, I need 20 eggs, that is not necessarily the case. Most of my patients who are having babies from donor eggs are getting them from six to eight donor eggs. Okay. Okay. So, but this is for women who are under 32. Right. So now does Mm -hmm. that mean as is it a guarantee? Have I had have I had patients who buy six donor eggs and don't get a baby from that? Absolutely. Unfortunately. I'm talking about the most number of people. Right. So Mm -hmm. when you're thinking about the number of eggs, you really do need to be counseled on that as an individual because it depends on your age most specifically. I don't have I don't have like a general one number, one size fits all. I will say that most women under 35, I would love to be able to get 12 eggs from, 12 to 15 eggs. 12 to 15 for one, for one live birth? For one, for one ongoing pregnancy, ultimately a live birth, right? Uh Um, Uh-huh. But that's not a hard and fast rule, right? For women who are over 30, who are 35 and over, that number is higher. And it really does depend age by age because once you hit, there's a, there's a drop off in the, or an increased number you need every year, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit until you hit 37. And then all of a sudden, when you look at national data, once you hit 38, and I'm not trying to scare women who are 38, 38 is a fantastic age. However, once you hit 38, that number goes up at a higher, the, the delta is higher, right? The slope is higher. You need more eggs than you've needed in every interval year before that to statistically, right? Statistics. This is not Mm -hmm. one person. This is statistics to statistically Mm -hmm. give you a higher chance of having an ongoing pregnancy or a live birth. That being said, I have had 39, 40 year old patients with very low egg count who we get one egg, two eggs per cycle, and they get a baby from that, right? So 
there is no real magic number. I would like to dispel that myth now. And, mm-hmm. you know, this, this is why it's important to actually have a consultation because we need to take each individual into consideration. Got it. Got it. So I'm curious if you can um, share a little bit about um, like a, maybe like a quick rundown mm-hmm. of the egg freezing process from start to finish. So I know that I was before I, when I was deciding to pursue this or potentially pursue egg freezing, I was listening. I was trying to listen to as many podcasts and uh, with doctors as I could. I, and I, that actually one of the reasons why we're talking is because th- there was some good, there were some good podcasts out there, but not enough information mm-hmm. out there. Um, and I heard so many different perspectives about the process of egg freezing. Yeah. I also from friends, you know, some people said it was really scary and it was horrible. And, you know, my, my experience was, it was pretty, it was with my body, I guess it was pretty mild. And then I heard maybe on the, on the other side that it was no big deal at all. So obviously every body is different, mm-hmm. but what would be about, if you could maybe like educate us a little bit about the process of egg freezing like what does it involve? Okay, absolutely. And yeah, you know, unfortunately there's not a lot of this does rely on people getting a consult. There might not be enough podcasts out there. But maybe we, hey, look, I am a physician who knows what they are doing and I've had my headset on backwards for the first 30 minutes of this interview that <laughs> Natalie just corrected me on, right? So, you know, you win some you lose some. But that being said, in terms of what the process looks like, I I'll give kind of like a high-end overview, right? Because there are obviously like outliers on every side. What this experience looks like in reality, the amount of time, not the, not the total time that you're focusing on this, but the time in which you need to be in one place, being able to go to a clinic several times over the course of, of, of your egg freezing cycle, right? That total time is for most women somewhere between uh, 10 and 17 days. Okay. Most women take injectable medications for on average between nine and 15 days, followed by an egg retrieval where we take out the eggs that you've grown 36 hours after your last dose of medications. Right. So I'm, what I'm leaving out here is that a lot of women do something called priming. Priming is when you take usually an oral medication, rarely an injectable medication. But regardless, this is not something you're going into your clinic for. You can be doing this on a Caribbean island if you want to. Believe me, I've had plenty of patients who are priming outside of the country, wherever the case may be. So the lead up, when I say priming, what we're doing is giving you most often an oral or a um, topical medication that helps kind of uh, tamper down your own endogenous or internal hormones. So we as the physicians can kind of, for lack of a more eloquent term, hijack this one particular egg growing cycle from your body. Because normally your brain and your ovaries are working in concert to grow one egg right? One egg that you are going to ovulate. Now, mind you, this does not apply to all people. If you are on a birth control pill, you are most likely not ovulating, right? But I'm saying a person who is not on contraception or who is on a contraception that does not have estrogen, so something like an IUD, let's let's put it that way. Most women are growing one egg every month and ovulating that egg with the ability to potentially get pregnant from that one egg. That was not the only egg that your body had as a contender to grow that month. It's just the one egg that was growing. The rest of them are dying off because the rest of the eggs that were contenders that month. For every one egg that you ovulate, there were several under, other contenders that are never even making it 
to be able to potentially mm-hmm. become pregnant, but that you are losing. Hence why we are losing eggs constantly as we get older. It's not just the one egg every month. There's a lot more than that that we're losing every month. And, you know, catch the, the, the catchphrase here is there's no way to stop that. And that's important to know. No matter what we do, it is the great biological equality of us as people with ovaries. We can, at t- to date with science, we cannot stop that process, regardless if you're pregnant, birth control pill, whatever. You are losing eggs all the time. So let's, you know, go back to what I was saying. You're growing that one egg. And in an egg freezing cycle, I'm not taking eggs from you that you are otherwise going to save for later. I'm just saving and retrieving all the rest of those contenders that you were otherwise going to lose. All right. That, the are, way, that are follicles. Those, those are, are follicles. So follicles are the house the egg makes to live in. When it's follicles, when, if you have seen, if, you, if you've gone to a doctor to talk about this already, or if you've talked to your friends who are talking about their follicle counts, follicle counts are the surrogate marker we use for egg number because the eggs live in follicles. The egg actually makes the follicle to live in. But I can't see eggs on an ultrasound, which is the modality I'm using to track your cycle, because eggs are microscopic. So I use, I, 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 I track their, their homes, right? I track the growth of their homes as they continue to build them and those homes grow. And those are follicles. So yes, I'm getting the eggs from those follicles, right? So mm-hmm. the medications we give you, the injectable medications, are just the same hormones that in a normal menstrual cycle our brain is actually making to grow one egg. We give them to you in higher doses so we can grow all the contenders you had that month that you were going to lose anyway, but this way I'm going to take them for you and freeze them, right? Mm-hmm. So we give you the injectable medications for anywhere- Shots. That's injectables are, or right. shots in your in your stomach. In your stomach. Some people can't do them in their stomach. Occasionally, people will give them in their leg, but they're supposed to be subcutaneous, which means below the skin. The easiest place to do them is in your abdomen. Um, so that's those are small shots. They're like a, you know right below the skin. I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish, you know, how they feel or what they are. I've done these cycles myself. So I can tell you this is not the time of your life, but for most people, even those who are terrified, I've had friends and patients terrified of needles. Most people are able to go through this process and end up coming out on the other side being like, that wasn't quite so bad as I thought it was going to be. Right. So Mm -hmm. you do uh, these shots for about two weeks on average. So the average is nine to about 15, 16 days of injections. And that is very individual to you. That's why we monitor you throughout the cycle. We're not just trying to torture you and say, come in every couple of days, like for the morning to get your blood drawn and your ultrasound done. That is because we want to track how your eggs are growing and those follicles are growing. So the average number of days for a person is 9 to 15 or 16 days of medication, depending on you as an individual, what type of medication protocol your physician has created for you as an individual. After that amount of days, whatever that may be, we when we decide that as physicians that your eggs are ready to go through the process that leads to retrieval, which is when we take them out, that's when you get this set of shots that are called the trigger shots. It could be one shot, it could be two shots, rarely three shots, but usually two shots, occasionally one. And those are shots that you give to yourself depending on your clinical situation, either in the belly like all your other shots have been or occasionally in the gluteus or in, in the butt muscle. Mm-hmm. Now that if you have to give it to yourself in the butt muscle, that is, I will say, a longer shot. It's called an intramuscular shot. But most people these days, especially for egg freezing, are just doing it subcutaneously right in the abdomen, just like the rest of your shots have been. Mm-hmm. That Those shots prepare your eggs for the process 
that gets them ready to be retrieved. In this process, they have to go through something called meiosis. And that's, again, another thing that I go over with patients during their consults. But it's basically the process whereby an immature egg that cannot be fertilized because it it has too many chromosomes. It's the full human complement of chromosomes, 46. In order to be able to be fertilized, it has to have gone through this process of meiosis whereby it divides in half, which makes sense, right? If you think about babies, they're not the full DNA complement of their parents. They're half each of their parents' DNA recombined to make a new human, right? So we Mm -hmm. need to get your egg to that process where it does that division. And that, by the way, quick aside, is the part that gets it's harder for us as we get older is that division because we've had that machinery since before we were born, right? So during the time from in between your last set of shots called your trigger shots until anywhere from 34 to 37 hours later, depending on your clinical situation, your eggs are taking that time to do that division. When we do your egg retrieval 34 to 37 hours later, what we are doing, most people are under anesthesia in different parts of the world women are not necessarily under anesthesia. And some women, even in the United States, are not under anesthesia. depends on the situation. But usually women are under what I would call twilight sleep. They are breathing on their own, but they are not awake for this process. And we are going vaginally with a vaginal ultrasound and using that to guide us while we do place a needle through either side of the vaginal wall and aspirate or suck out the fluid from the ovaries that has these eggs in it. After mm-hmm. so, so no abdominal scars. Do I occasionally need to go abdominally for a retrieval? Yes, we're talking about outliers right now, right? But there are people who, because of either a, a pelvic particular situation, or maybe because of fibroids in their uterus, or for some reason or another, have to have an abdominal retrieval. Not all that common, but all of us know how to do it who do this as a profession, right? So that would be something Mm -hmm. you talk about individually with your physician. But generally speaking, most retrievals are vaginal. Mm -hmm. And you get the eggs out, and then it's all up to the lab. We clean them off. We see after we clean the cells off around them which ones have done that division process. I can't tell whether they've done it normally. That's something that, unfortunately, we don't know until you try to fertilize eggs down the line, which, to come back to it, is why this is not 100% insurance for everyone, right? But Mm -hmm. I know based on your age, what your chances of each egg dividing normally are. So I can give you statistics based on your age and the number of eggs I was able to retrieve. And then those eggs Mm -hmm. are frozen through a process called vitrification and they are ready for you whenever you want to use them. They don't decline in quality every year you're waiting to use them. So once they are frozen, they are frozen. Right. And okay. I would say well, then after that, the recovery process, for, depending on the person, takes anywhere to feel back to normal from about five to about 14 days. You know, I went back to work the next day after my retrievals. Not everyone feels up to that, but most people, by the time they get a period again, or the whatever the period feels like to them, some women on IUDs while they're doing this do not get periods. But when your hormonal levels have gotten to the point where you would get a period again, which is five to 14 days later, you reset. And maybe you don't feel 100% back to normal, but you should feel about 95% back to normal. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. So this is a good, this is a good, more like scientific uh, summary of the process. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll jump in a little bit to just share sure. maybe a really quick summer, summary. And you can correct me Absolutely. if I uh, make any mistakes along the way mm-hmm. about my process. So um, so basically what, what happened for me was that I set up an initial, well, first I was researching clinics and trying to figure out where do I want to go. Um, I had 
an initial consultation with another physician, uh, decided maybe I'll get a second opinion. I saw Dr. Pasternak. Um, so we had initial just face-to-face conversation. Um, I thought I want to go with Dr. Pasternak. So after that, about an hour appointment, I said, let's do it. And so from there, there was the first, um, baseline ultrasound. So that was, so the ultrasound is a vaginal ultrasound. That's from, from my patient experience, it's kind of like a pap smear. Um, and so I came in throughout a two week process every few days, um, depending on when Dr. Pasternak said for me to come in to have a vaginal ultrasound where we could see, and she would show me the follicles, how many, my follicle count and how that was going and do an assessment. So it's like having a pap smear every few days. And during that two week period, I had different medications. Some of them, I was taking shots in my stomach, sometimes starting in, I think the evening. And then I added a morning and an evening shots, maybe two or three shots Mm -hmm. twice a day, ultimately. Um, And also there's another oral medication I was taking as well. Um, And then um, after about 10 days, Dr. Pasternak, or 10 or I don't know, 12 days, Dr. Pasternak added a shot, the trigger shot, which was the one that I took 36 hours before the egg retrieval, which is from my patient experience was like a minor surgery. So I, I came in after about two weeks. Um, I got into kind of like a surgical gown and took a surgical selfie with that, which was really <laughs> cute. You know, just be like with like kind of got scrubbed in, and um, and then I I had that light anesthesia that you were talking about, mm-hmm. and you you went in with your team and retrieved the eggs, and after that, I for my recovery was a couple. A, a few days, maybe it took about five days for me to feel back to normal. Um, and throughout the process for me, I had s- like some bloating, I think maybe a little bit more emotional. And so I was wondering if you could maybe share with us a little bit about um, what are some common side effects mm-hmm. physically and emotionally that people can expect during the egg freezing process. And how does this impact someone's potentially impact someone's like mind, body, and spirit going through this process? Mm-hmm. Great question, because all that's really that's very important, right? I think a lot of people come into this very scared of that component um, because carving out the time is hard enough, right? Do I need a lot of time from people going through this? No, but I do need them to be n- near the office, knowing that you know you can take day trips, but you might have to. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna know when you need to come in until the visit. When I see you, I'll tell you when you're coming in next, right? So mm-hmm. the average number of times to come in is probably between four and seven, depending on the person. But it's hard to plan the rest of your life when you know that you can't like go out of town for that period of time. But I think most of us can figure out a way unless, you know, I do have some patients who are consultants who are flying all over the place. It's a bit harder for them. But generally speaking, those two weeks of time that I need you, two and a half weeks, most people are able to carve out physically, right? Mm -hmm. The visits are short. I will say that I would hope that for most people, I find pap smears to be much more uncomfortable because we're placing a speculum, which is like a metal or plastic tool that is a bit wider. And then we're taking 
uh, a brush to the cervix. So I will say that if that was your experience, Natalie, absolutely. I will say that most women who come in and do this say that it's much less uncomfortable than a pap smear. But yes, you are Mm -hmm. still having a vaginal instrument placed every time you come in. For me, it was less Mm -hmm. uncomfortable than a pap smear. But that being Mm -hmm. said, it's very individual from person to person, right? It should Mm -hmm. not be a painful experience. Let's put it that way. Uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. perhaps. It shouldn't be painful. Now, Mm -hmm. as far as the emotional component for it, the emotional component actually coincides with what's happening with our hormones, right? Because the hormones that you're making that are driving your emotional reaction, your body is actually making. The eggs that you are growing are making the estrogen that is driving whatever emotional reaction you are going to have. And it's not synthetic estrogen in a pill. This is the estrogen that is being made by the cells around your eggs. And your estrogen is getting high. Depending on the person, it might not get that high. It might get just to levels of normal ovulation, which you get in the middle of a cycle. But for some women, it can get to even like slightly higher than pregnancy levels of estrogen, right? Mm -hmm. So there are some women who are more, I would say, emotionally. Labile sounds a little like either scientific or colloquial. I'm not sure actually which one. Labile is very different for every person. But there are a lot of women who are emotionally heightened during this experience. But Mm -hmm. most who have told me that they feel while heightened, not bad, right? They, they'll say that like, oh, okay, well, I was a bit more, I cried at this commercial, but I also had way more fun laughing at this party. So I think mm-hmm. everything might be a little bit intensified, but regardless, your emotional reaction is your emotional reaction to have. I mm-hmm. don't, uh, I think one of the most common questions that I get is, will it feel like being on the birth control pill? The birth control pill made me crazy. Like, will it feel like that? Most people, it doesn't actually feel like that because those are synthetic hormones. These are hormones being made by your own body. So if anything, it would be more akin to what you might feel like in early pregnancy when your estrogen levels are getting very high. Not necessarily with all the same nausea and super fun other things that come with it, mm-hmm. but it's hard to predict how someone is going to react. It's very different. Oh, most of the time people say like, oh yeah, like I, I, I feel a little fine, maybe a little bit more excitable or whatever than usual, but my major symptom is tired. I feel tired. And that's the most common symptom is fatigue. Mm-hmm. Fatigue. So more emotional fatigue, bloating. Blo- fatigue. So yeah, ter- in terms of emotion, right? Fatigue. Emotion. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe you feel really happy and great. Some women love it. They're like, I feel sexy. I feel fantastic, which actually kind of makes sense because that's what happens when estrogen gets high for a lot of people. It's what happens mm-hmm. near ovulation. It's why we biologically want to have sex near ovulation, right? To further the species. But um, in terms of physical symptoms, bloating is the most common symptom because you're taking two ovaries that normally would be growing one egg. And for a lot of women, we're growing more than that. So your ovaries, which are this, you know, certain size are all of a sudden distending as all these different eggs grow and your body's not used to that. So the bloat, while not dangerous from that respect, can feel new and fast. And that will go away. It's not permanent. This is the pure definition of water weight. You're growing these follicles that you brought up earlier where the eggs are living. Those follicles have fluid in them. That's where the eggs mm-hmm. are swimming around, right? Well, mm-hmm. they're not swimming around till the end. They're actually attached to the follicle wall. But that's that fluid is accumulating. So it really is the true definition of bloat from water weight. That what that's going to get absorbed. You are not going to keep that. By the time you get your next period after the cycle, that's all gone. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's really it's it's 
temporary symptoms. It's temporary. Most people ex- most people express that their symptoms are the most heightened actually after the retrieval before they get their period because you're going from very high estrogen levels to very high progesterone levels. Progesterone is progestational, pro-pregnancy. And that's what happens in a normal menstrual cycle before and after you ovulate. High estrogen versus high progesterone. High mm-hmm. estrogen is our sexy lady hormone. Not that everyone has to feel mm-hmm. great doing this process, but mm-hmm. that's generally what we think of when we think of estrogen. Whereas high progesterone, that's our cranky, sore boobs, bloaty hormone. So if you've got a ton of that from lots of follicles that you ovulate that are now making progesterone, it makes sense physiologically that you would feel perhaps crankier, more bloated, a little bit more emotionally heightened and actually after your retrieval before you get your period again and reset to neutral. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. So that's that's all good information to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious about the research connecting to any risk factors of egg freezing? And, yeah. and also, is there a connection between freezing your eggs and cancer? And what's what do we know about that? Great question. Obviously, a lot of people come in very concerned about that, right? Because mm-hmm. the last thing you want to do is do something to increase your ability to have children in the future and then not be around for those children because it gave you a higher risk of cancer. Of course, right? Mm-hmm. So what I will say is there is a lot of research that has gone into this And to date, we have found no increased risk in women going through this process and a future incidence of cancer. Now, there's a difference between causality, right, and things that Mm -hmm. are actually just associated with one another. Right. So this goes into a totally separate conversation that I could go on for hours about because my my main research project when I was in fellowship was endometriosis. So I'll bring this up now. Endometriosis is endometrium is the lining of the uterus. It's what you shed every month when you have a period. It's Mm -hmm. what you build up when you're getting ready to ovulate and then where an embryo implants if you become pregnant. It's supposed to just be in the cavity of your uterus. Unfortunately, in women with endometriosis, that tissue is for some reason found potentially all throughout their body. But for most women who have this disease, unfortunately, found mostly within the pelvis, but outside of the uterus. It can cause inflammation. It can cause cyclic pain. It can cause pain with worsened pain with periods, with sex, with bowel movements. It can cause uh, scar tissue and distortion of the anatomy if it's really severe. So there's a lot of things it can do. There are women who have silent endometriosis, very, very low grade or high grade, but would never know. So it's a hard disease to, to, to lock down and know without fail that women have just based on symptoms, right? There's classic presentations, but really the only way to diagnose women with endometriosis is to go and do surgery on her. As you can imagine, the mm. number needed to treat, uh, if you've heard about that Um, statistic is basically the number of women that I would need to take to the operating room to see benefit from a person who has endometriosis in terms of fertility, right? And that number through a lot of data has been found to be one in 40. I would need to take 40 women who don't know if they have this disease to the operating room to yield benefit in terms of fertility, right? So we don't take everyone to the operating room. Mm -hmm. But my point being, I'm getting a bit off on a tangent because I don't want everyone to get terrified. Oh my God, I've got endometriosis. What if I do? I have to go like to my doctor Mm -hmm. tomorrow. But the point is, Unfortunately, women with endometriosis, while plenty of women with endometriosis have babies just fine and never need fertility help, fertility issues with fertility has been linked to women with endometriosis as well. So while 
probably only somewhere between 10, depending on who you ask and what studies, somewhere between 10 and up to 30% of women in the world have endometriosis. Most studies say 10 to 15%, but I would think that most physicians would agree it could be up to 30%. Almost half of the patients who I see for fertility-related issues probably do have some degree of endometriosis, right? So definitely there can be a causal link, but it's not a 100%. But women who do have endometriosis have a higher risk of tubal and ovarian cancer. Okay. So it's more of a connect. There's more of a connection between women who they have, have a higher endometri- risk of gynecologic cancers. Yes. Right. So, so higher percentages of, of women with endometriosis seek fertility treatment, which is why um, you might see a higher rate of cancer. It's, it's not that fertility treatment per se, but it's the risk factor inherently in their exactly. their, for, their prior medical exactly. condition. It's the risk factor that gives you a higher risk of fertility-related related issues is also giving you a higher risk of cancer. It's not specifically the process of going through fertility treatment. Mm-hmm. So that is the one thing, right? Now, there are, there are lots of other... Um, things that people have brought up and studies that have been done. Like what if you have this insidious, what if you have this breast cancer that you don't know about yet that's sensitive to estrogen and then we get your estrogen really high for two weeks, right? While you're doing Mm -hmm. this process. The reality of it is that women who actually are found to have breast cancer after that had that breast cancer already. Right. Mm -hmm. So whether that Mm -hmm. kicks it into high gear from two weeks of estrogen being high, technically that's possible, but your estrogen would have gotten that high in pregnancy if you were to become pregnant anyway. Right. So this is not going through IVF in and of itself is not, has not been found to be an independent risk factor for any of these cancers. Mm-hmm. Now, that and being said, my patients with cancer, there I do treat them differently. There are certain medications I give them, and that's kind of a deep dive, and that's individual from person to person. There are oral agents to keep their estrogen low that I can give people who have cancer and who are known to have sensitive or breast cancer sensitive to estrogen. That's kind of a whole other topic, but in and of itself, IVF does not cause breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And IVF, is that interchangeable with egg freezing? Great question. It's not interchangeable with egg freezing, but when we talk about the process that is related to the female partner in terms of getting eggs growing and out of her body, that process is the same whether you're just doing retrieving eggs and doing egg freezing or doing in vitro fertilization, IVF, and fertilizing those eggs with sperm. The so burden, the initial process. Exactly. The burden the on the female physically and emo- phys- emotionally is a whole separate issue, right? Coming in for fertility preservation and infertility are two very separate things. Coming in because you have cancer or coming in because you're married at 30 but don't want a child yet, like those are two very separate emotional burdens for people. I'm not going to mm-hmm. diminish either of them. It's just a very different situation. But in terms of like the physical process for what people are going through, regardless of egg freezing versus IVF during that portion of it, it's the same. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And so when it comes to um, paying for the cost of egg freezing, um, what what would be the ballpark price that mm-hmm. pe- that this process costs? And does insurance cover it? And mm-hmm. are there loopholes to make egg freezing more affordable? What do you know in that in that regard. I mean, gosh, I wish I could do this for free for everybody. Like I really, I really do. I wish this were something that were covered by all insurances. And unfortunately, you know, those of us who are within the fields of female 
healthcare or mental health know that these are the two sectors that are classically underserved in terms of insurance, right? When you mm-hmm. ask when you ask women going through this process, what are you paying out of pocket for? It's my it's egg freezing and my therapist, right? right. Now these things absolutely should be covered by insurance. That's a whole, you know, conversation unfortunately for another day that could take hours and lifetimes, quite frankly. But Unfortunately, it is not covered by all insurances. Even people who have cancer, it's not necessarily covered if they're not making embryos per se, or if they are. So if they're single and not ready to make embryos, egg freezing might not be covered. Sometimes people say, or insurance companies will say, if you have cancer, oftentimes women need to, I've had several patients who have applied for grants through um, programs like Live Strong or whatever the case may be to get a grant in order to do egg freezing itself. Um, As far as as the cost of it out of pocket if you have no insurance coverage the cost is about 12 to 13,000 dollars for a traditional egg freezing cycle now i want people to be aware of this because if there are some you know you might find advertisement online that says egg freezing for 7 to 8,000 dollars that's not including the cost of medication medication is single-handedly a half to a third of the cost of this process for most people in a traditional cycle it will cost somewhere in the neighborhood of four to six thousand dollars so maybe three but but my point is that if you take all those things in one fell swoop it's probably for most people depending on where you live it might be different but in the neighborhood of let's say ten to thirteen thousand dollars Plus the medication. No, including the medication. Inclu- including the medication. Some women who need less medication, if we've if we're going after very few eggs, if somebody has very few eggs to start off with, they don't just they just don't need as much medication because we're recruiting mm-hmm. less eggs to grow. So they might be closer to the neighborhood of ten to eleven thousand dollars all in all. But for a traditional IVF cycle or egg freeze sorry, egg freezing cycle, it's about twelve to thirteen thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Right. And then some some people need to can have one cycle and have a sufficient amount of eggs for what mm-hmm. their family planning goals are. Mm-hmm. And some people need to need or desire to have two or three cycles in order to get enough eggs. To and be each happy time, with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and you, most clinics, um, charge per cycle. Like it's, it's, it's not like a one all inclusive. It's every time you do it, it's, right. it's repeated or is that right? Or- right. You know, there are different plans that certain clinics have. Some clinics say pay in advance this amount and we'll guarantee you this number of eggs. That's rare. And I think that's a little, you know, I'm not going to cast judgment. I just don't know that that's necessarily the way because not every woman, women are coming at it from a, so many different standpoints, right? We've got women who have two eggs in every month, right, that we can grow versus women who have 30 eggs. The average number depends on the age of the person. Most women in their probably mid-30s on any given like month, I'll probably see somewhere between, I don't know, like eight and 15, 16 eggs in their or follicles, right, in their count. In their early 30s, it's a bit more, probably between 10 and 20. But that's a that's an average. I have outliers all the time, and it doesn't change your fertility. Fertility is not about egg number. If I'm going to make one point today, that's probably the point to make. Fertility is not about egg number. Anti-malarian hormone levels, AMH, that blood draw you've been probably hearing about all over the news, does not tell you anything about your fertility. Fertility is proven by getting pregnant. And if you have not tried to get pregnant, I cannot tell you about your fertility. All I can tell you about is the age-associated decline in fertility that's happening to all of us. But 
to go back to cost, most women, because of that average number, and we're not going to get all of those eggs for the most part, right, that we're able to retrieve starting from that starting number. They will not all divide. They might not all grow. So most women were shooting for about 75% of that starting number. Anywhere between 50 and 100% is considered appropriate or normal to get at the end of an egg-free cycle. So if you're thinking that a woman in her mid-30s is coming in and we're seeing 10 to 11 eggs. So that means we're hoping to get seven to eight. Most women will want to do more than one cycle in order to feel more secure in their future obstetrical outcomes from that number. So I will say that if cost were not a factor, most women would probably do more than one cycle. But yes, depending on the clinic, you will get a, a discount for a second cycle. You know, we, we don't want to make this cost prohibitive for people as much as we possibly can. I know that my practice uh, says that depending on your age, if you get a certain number of eggs, we essentially guarantee you an ongoing pregnancy or we will give you your money for the cycle back. That's just because we feel so confident in our technology and in our success rates, right? doesn't work for everybody, but it works for a large enough part of the population that we want to show people that we have the ownership over that. But every practice is different. But yes, generally speaking, it's about $12,000 to $13,000 on average per cycle. Got it. So that's important for people to know that to start off with, that's a lot of money for most people. Um, Yeah. and, And it's not, a lot of people might have to or want to do two cycles, maybe more depending on, depending on many factors. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious in terms of choosing a clinic. Um, this is, I think this is a really important topic. Yeah. I know that I went to two clinics. I was trying to do research. I was trying to listen to other podcasts, like mm-hmm. to try to figure out like, how do I choose a clinic? How do you know if it's the right doctor or facility? Do you have some insight in terms of that? And do you feel like most clinics are are good. Are there things to warning signs to look out for? Like how 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 might someone approach finding the right clinic? Mm-hmm. And how important is that from your view? I mean, I I think that it's very important to be in a place that makes you feel safe and comfortable. I, I don't know that I could possibly use the word cozy in terms of egg freezing because this is not an experience where you're like, oh, I feel wrapped up next to a fireplace and like, you know, with my friends. But I want it to be as close to that as possible while going through a medical procedure because this is a medical procedure. Right now, that being said, I I do believe that there are. It's easy to look up clinics online. Right now, online is difficult. At the same time, I say easy and difficult within the same breath because a lot of people you, you can go by reviews, but a lot of people will only write reviews when they have extremes of an experience. So you can have one physician who somebody had a fantastic experience with, who somebody else just didn't jive with, and leaves a very poor review or a clinic. Right. So it can mm-hmm. be a little hard from that perspective, but I think doing your due diligence in terms of online research is important and taking everything with a grain of salt, right? It's the same way that anything is reviewed, right? There are going to be extremes on all sides and there are going to be outliers on all sides. But, you know, looking into asking your friends, asking, you know, people who you respect, who might've gone through this process, what was your experience like? What made it good or bad? What should I be asking? I think my, in terms of what I find to be important and, you know, I left, I, I, I told you this, Natalie, but I left the East coast where I thought I was going to live forever to join this specific practice because of how much I thought I believed in this practice. And I believed in their data, their technology, and the people who worked there. And I want everyone when they go as a patient to have that feeling. I 
want you to walk in there. And once you've had your consult with your doctor, be able to say, and once you've talked to your team, your care team, say, I, I feel good about this decision right? Mm -hmm. This might not be for some people, they walk in and this is empowering. They're like, yes, hurrah, I'm doing this for my future. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Some people are devastated when they walk through my door. Probably most are like I started off by talking to you. Most people come in weeping that whatever the case may be, I don't know necessarily that you will leave with the warm fuzzies, but I want you to feel connected to your practitioner, that you can talk to them and be honest with them, that you feel supported by them, that you trust their judgment, right? Everybody's personality is different. Some people want someone who's very hand-holding. Some people want somebody who's very um, only talking about the good side. Somebody Some people want a full prism of tell me absolutely everything. Some people just want like, this is the, you know, quote unquote sensei of the field. I don't care how touchy-feely they are. That's the person I want to go to, right? You've got to do what's right for you and find the practitioner Mm -hmm. who's right for you. This is not going to be a long-term experience in your life, but it's going to be an important one. So I, you, you should go where you feel comfortable. And if something just doesn't feel like it is right or clicks, that's okay. It doesn't mean that that person is a bad doctor or you're a bad person or whatever the case may be. It might just not be right. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say from that standpoint, make sure it feels like it fits and ask the questions you want to ask and make sure that your physician or a person who you're talking to can either give you those answers directly or can tell you why they can't give you those answers. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so very individ- very individual decision. Right. To try to like take take factors into account and do the best that you can given yeah. the research. And I would ask people what, how many eggs have you thawed? Okay. You're freezing my eggs. What's your experience? Like what's happening on the other side? What are your pregnancy rates on the other side? Like, where are you storing your eggs? If I come back for them, are they here on site or am I going to have to go to like a completely different state or do we have to get that? Like how many times are they going to be transported? You know, think things that you, that are important in terms of knowing you feel secure, right? Mm -hmm. As far as that person taking care of your biology, you're putting that in their hands and they should feel, they should feel trustworthy from that respect. So everybody is different. Like I've had so many patients who will say to me like, oh, I'm so glad that you're, I feel so much better with a female doctor. I've gone through this experience and I feel better with you as a female. If that's how you feel, just, just make sure that know how important that is to you. Most practices do have male physicians. And unfortunately, we are not there every single day of the week, right? I'm there five days a week and I'm on call at least once a month on the weekends. But you might get, if you're somebody who says like, look, I've had this experience where I really can't have a male physician, make sure you go to a practice that only has female physicians, right? Or if I, for example, when I sought my gynecologist, I went to a male physician because I had no problem with that, but it's very individual from person to person, right? Maybe you've only had good experiences with male physicians and want one. I don't know whatever the case may be, but just make sure you ask those questions because what you don't want is to have expectations set and then have them not met. Ask your physician, will you be seeing me during this experience or who will I be communicating with? Like, how do I get questions across? It's different things are important for different people. Just ask, think in advance of the things that are important to you and that you want from this experience and try to ask those questions. And I think that the best way to know what questions to ask is to ask someone who's been through it, right? Mm -hmm. Just the Mm -hmm. same way you get a recommendation for anyone or for anything. Right. Okay. So that makes sense. So to try to just try to ask the questions that are important to you 
I, for me, for me, I really just try to also kind of like collect more data by like listening to podcasts, by talking mm-hmm. to people I knew that went through it. Um, I took notes when I was listening to some of the doctors on this podcast that I listened to um, and with friends and just I, I came into you with a printout. I, I saw a clinic, I went to a clinic before and had an okay experience, mm-hmm. um, but there were just kind of like little, maybe little things that I felt like just didn't feel totally right. Like for example, they wanted me to, this one clinic wanted me to pay a thousand dollars in order to like d- proactively donate my eggs if I die, but like to pay the a thousand dollars now in case I die and need to donate it, which I could be misunderstanding that, but something about that just felt a little bit like, mm, I don't know if that's the, that seems a little off to me. Mm-hmm. So let me go to another clinic. Let me just like collect my information. So then I, m- I met with you and I thought, okay, this is, this is more of a, more of a click, just like many things that we, we need to find a click. So that's, mm-hmm. so yeah, I think that's a great view. Um, so a couple more questions mm-hmm. and I think we're, we're almost wrapping up and thank you so much again for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was wondering, so after the egg freezing process is over and let's say that, um, so I'm in my thirties, let's say that I decide that I want to get pregnant with using the eggs that I've frozen. Um, I'm curious a little bit about, um, like if there's an age that's too old for me to carry, my baby using my, my future baby using my eggs. Mm -hmm. Um, can I carry, can I carry this, this baby after menopause and what are the risk factors of carrying your eggs? Um, I don't even know if that's the right term, but later in life. Mm -hmm. So the risk factors for the woman and the baby, um, is there, are there ages that are better to do that? Like, how do you think about that? So I have these eggs, they're frozen Mm -hmm. now, now what? And what should I, should I try to be getting pregnant before a certain age if I want a child or how does, how do I think about that? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and those are all important questions, right? Because we don't, uh, very few women who go through this process want to be pregnant at 65, right? So there's extremes of this, right? Uh Generally speaking, most women who are freezing their eggs don't know exactly when they're going to use them, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, I would say that it's a generalization, but it's probably true for most. So when you think of what's happening us to us as we get older, what's important in terms of success when it comes to our frozen eggs is the age at which we froze them. And I said that before, I'll say that again. Age at which you freeze the eggs, not at which you use them is the important factor there. However, biologically speaking, yes, we. I've told you we have not evolved from that respect. We were meant to be pregnant in our 20s and 30s, right? But that being said, we can be pregnant later than that. But pregnancy becomes higher risk as we get older. There is no hard and fast like, oh, I I say that you absolutely, I would never tell you to be pregnant past that time. But that there are guidelines set on a state-by-state level. For example, uh, a lot of states use 55 as a cutoff that you cannot do an embryo transfer, be it your egg or a donor egg after the age of 55. Mm-hmm. And that's pregnancy does get higher risk as we get older in all respect. Pregnancy is a high risk state at baseline. Let's dispel that myth, right? Mm-hmm. So pregnancy might be the most beautiful and natural thing in the world, but it puts you at higher risk for most things, including high blood pressure, diabetes, 
blood clots, all the complications of anything that can come from that, bleeding at delivery. You know, one in 10 women in the world, let's say that's not in like a a country like the United States, even though we have our own issues with morbidity and mortality for a variety of other reasons, including the health of our population at baseline. But in a lot of places in the world, one in 10 women still dies in pregnancy or childbirth. Mm -hmm. Pregnancy is not necessarily as bleeding at delivery, right? Pregnancy is not necessarily a safe state. Mm -hmm. And it gets more dangerous the older that we get. So when we say advanced maternal age or this cut this this age of 35 that comes into we say it in terms of egg quality but we also say it in terms of just being pregnant does that mean that i'm telling women you got to have your kids before 35 absolutely not but if a woman is coming to me and saying look it's equal opportunity for me to have a baby at 41 or 47 of course i'm going to say have that baby at 41 in fact most places I, I know that at our clinic if you're having a baby over the age of 44 we ask you to actually pre preemptively go and see a high-risk obstetrician for what's called preconception counseling to talk about all the increased risks that come with being pregnant from 45 and on. Not to say those risks haven't, you know, existed earlier, but they've just become much more heightened at that point. Mm -hmm. So depending on the state, there can be hard and fast rules for when you can become pregnant with a IVF pregnancy. Um, but yes, pregnancy for several reasons become becomes higher risk as we get older. But it's not to say somebody can't have a risk of excessive bleeding in their 20s. Of course you can. And, and a lot of women do, right? Great mm-hmm. advantage of modern medicine that we have the ability to hopefully help with that in the healthcare right. setting. So, um, but but pregnancy is not without risk. I can make a menopausal woman pregnant. I've had menopausal patients who I transfer embryos to. We all go through menopause at different times. Some women are menopausal at 32, right? Some women are Mm -hmm. menopausal at 55. Age of menopause does not determine when you can become pregnant with a donor either egg or um, uh, and once once you're becoming pregnant, it's an embryo, right? So either a a outside donor egg that leads to an embryo or your own making yourself your own donor right with mm-hmm. eggs that you froze that doesn't you you can do that once you're menopausal but depending on the age there are higher risks mm-hmm. so menopause you can still have a baby um using a donor egg including if you're if you froze your eggs and you're your own donor egg mm-hmm. that's what the idea between behind egg freezing is you become your own donor potentially mm-hmm. Right. So you can become pregnant after menopause with your own egg, if but it's higher risk. It's oh, higher. Please. It's higher risk. But um, yes, you can. We can. We can. The uterus, the, the terminology that says that the uterus doesn't age. I don't love that term because we're always aging. We're all aging. Every cell, right. you know, we're aging, right? Your hair turns gray. Like you, you can't say that the uterus isn't aging, but we can work with the aging of the uterus. Mm-hmm. much more readily than I can work with the aging of the egg. Once your eggs have yeah. aged to a certain point, like I can't work with them anymore. But in terms of the uterus, I have more leeway. And the success, if you look at the success rates of donor egg pregnancies, where the best data comes from, the success of pregnancies depended on the age of the donor. It was fairly independent of the age of the recipient and the age of the uterus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the, the most important factor is the age of the age and quality of the egg. 
Age, yeah, age of the egg, which leads to the quality of the egg because quality Got is it. mostly based upon age, but not to mitigate the 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 dangers of pregnancy and that it does get more dangerous as we get older. So this is why I think it's important. This is why you speak to a doctor, right? This is why that mm-hmm. I even sometimes have patients who have come in and have ha- have multiple other health issues, and I want those to be addressed before they become pregnant, right? Because these mm-hmm. are things because pregnancy at baseline is beautiful. It's wonderful. It's natural. It's not necessarily the safest state. Right. Yeah. A lot of fun topics, right? A lot of fun, hard, not not really fun, really hard topics. I mean, Um, there's a reason that we who have done this, like I can't, the number of years that I, it's, you know, four years of med school, four years of OBGYN residency, four, three years of reproductive endocrinology and fertility specialization, right? Like we're not coming into this blind. There's so much that goes into this. We're constantly learning more. Your physicians are going through continuing medical education. Like we have to, we, we, even if you didn't want to, which I think most people do want to keep learning, but like we have to keep up with all this data because more and more is coming to light every every year. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I wonder if kind of we can wrap up on what's something that would be hopeful that you commonly witness around fertility uh, or that a, pers- a hopeful perspective about fertility and this egg freezing process mm-hmm. that you wish people would know and that, that would help people feel feel better about their life path and Mm -hmm. pursuing a family perhaps outside of um, what they might have thought would have happened, Mm -hmm. maybe off off timing of what they had hoped or wanted or thought would happen. What would be a hopeful, hopeful view? I think that, and you know, this is, you can take into this spirituality, religion, kismet, you know, whatever it is that you believe in. What I can say is that when a person realizes that goal, be it getting that baby, if it's genetically theirs, if it's not genetically theirs, whatever path they've taken to it in order to have that family, people, it might not be the way that you saw it coming, but it doesn't make anyone love their baby any less or love their child any less, or, you know, whatever the path they've chosen, that's your path. That's the right path. The only path that is right for you is the path that you have taken. And I think that a lot of us don't know what that path is yet. And it is scary to know that our biology owns us in terms of that path. Mm -hmm. And guess what? We're not popping out all our kids in our teenage years and necessarily all going to bed with the sunset and waking with the sunrise, although I kind of do. And I mean, whatever, I'm, I'm into that. But that being mm-hmm. said, I think that we honestly don't know what path we're going to be on. And this allows you to continue. This allows you, it gives you more leeway to continue to forge your own path. Think about, mm-hmm. you see all these, I, I'm not a huge presence on social media as an individual, but I do enjoy all, you know, all the memes, cartoons and things that come with it. New Yorker cartoons Mm -hmm. near and dear to my heart. Uh But you think about all these things that talk about our parents' generation. When I say our parents, I speak as somebody who is between 25 and 45, right? That's the generation that I Mm -hmm. relate to. Doesn't mean I don't take care of people outside of that generation. But you think of like our parents' generation versus our generation. It's like at 22, my parents were married, had a kid, had a house. And now I have like like a one week old carton of milk. Things are changing. Uh-huh. Yeah. We're doing yeah. different things <laughs> along with becoming empowered as women. It's also meant that we have to accept the fact that we 
can ultimately want to achieve it all, but in our day in day out activity, we might not necessarily not necessarily be able to have it all every single freaking day, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. today, I worked starting at seven a.m. I came home. I had to go f- to physical therapy for an injury that I'm fortunately recuperating from. I had to walk my dog. Love my dog, but. I did not mm-hmm. get to make the dinner I wanted to make tonight. That does not make me less of a woman, less of a domestic, or less of a person, right? I didn't get – I'm not going to get to see the friends tomorrow who I wanted to because of something else that is – we don't get to do everything every single day, right. right? Our plan is evolving as we are evolving, and this allows us, as we take on more and more responsibility as women and get to understand the concept of having it all on our own terms – This should be an empowering process by which we can say, guess what? I'm going to do this at the time that makes sense for me. Maybe I wanted this five years ago, but I'm doing this now because I can't do it right now, right? So Mm -hmm. maybe I wanted it five years ago, but five years ago was not the time and today is not the time. This allows us to put into play whatever our version of having it all is. And that might not look what you think it's going to look like, but it's different for every single person. And I will say that this for me started off as a sad process. Like I told you, I went through my first cycle thinking that I never thought I was going to need to do this. Like I was on a path. That path did not pan out. I am so happy I did it. I was so, you know, emotionally heightened afterwards because my hormones were high, but relieved and empowered and thinking, thank God, I don't have to just settle and have it all figured out right now because I don't know where I'm going to be in five years, but I know I have an idea of what I want my end goals to be. Don't know how I'm going to achieve them, but I want to leave those doors open. So I think Mm -hmm. that the positive or like the hopeful part is here. Allow yourself to find whatever non-traditional like, you know, version, whatever your version of having it all is, whatever that means. This is your best chance biologically at giving yourself the option for that, whether you are wanting baby number two, three, four and not ready for that or not ready for child number one or not even sure what the heck you want. Mm-hmm. This is giving you that option. What's your best chance of giving you that option? And I am thankful. I, I pray every day to my uh, my frozen eggs, my babies on ice, <laughs> and to all the other modern advances we have in, in yeah. healthcare, like my IUD, my holy Santa Marina, as I call her. I thank mm-hmm. God for her prayer every day. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would say it's hopeful. Yeah, that that's amazing. And I, I really appreciate you just acknowledging that we, yeah, we have a lot more options. Um, sometimes it's sad that the option that we maybe thought we would have isn't there, but there's also so much opportunity and um, we're allowed, it sounds like the technology is allowing for so much more um, ability for choice and being empowered. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for everything you're doing. You've been up since seven. It's nine thirty p.m. <laughs> oh, I've been up since right earlier now. than that. Don't worry about it. But yeah, and here's the thing. Guess what? If you're at, if if you are the outlier, let's let's send this out to the outliers. If you are that person who it doesn't work for, right? I'm not going to be the Debbie Downer here. I'm a lifelong optimist. But guess mm-hmm. what? You did everything you flipping could, and it just means that your having it all comes in a different blessing. Mm-hmm. But you did it. You did it. You took action. I think that what, when we regret things, it's not taking action. It's not taking things into our own hands. This is taking mm-hmm. something into your own hands. Beautifully said. Thank you so much, Dr. Pasternak. This has yeah, been so infor- informative and 
So great to see you. And um, yeah, until next time, there's so many more topics to, to cover on this. Yeah, it's really you let me know if, you, if we can always figure out a time to have me back from the recesses of my Telegraph Hill closet. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Natalie. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. I think we've been extremely fortunate to get some great information from Dr. Pasternak about the process and science of egg freezing, and I really do appreciate that you chose to listen. And this has been so much fun together, and feel free to follow me on Instagram at Relationship Podcast. And if you found this to be interesting or useful, please share this with someone who you think would enjoy it too. My name is Natalie Bloom, remembering that through awareness of self and others comes greater connection and peace. Until next time. I hope you had a great time listening. Again, just a friendly reminder that the podcast is for informational purposes only. Relationship University is not intended to be a substitute for psychological, psychiatric, or medical advice, or diagnosis and treatment or actual psychotherapy with a therapist or psychologist. If you're desiring or needing mental health support, please seek the advice of your medical provider or other qualified mental health professionals. If you think this may be a mental health emergency, please call your doctor or 911 immediately or go to your local emergency room. Life can be challenging sometimes, and everyone goes through tough things. And I hope you're seeking professional support from your own personal therapist if that's something that you think would be beneficial to your life. I appreciate your time to listen to this and take care. Mm-hmm.